Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 087-660-40-237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets, for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Tuesday morning, the 11th of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The government meets today to sign off on once-off payments which will come to a total of an extra 1.2 billion euro paid out to welfare recipients. This will undoubtedly be very welcomed by those who will benefit from one or more of eight lump sum payments which will begin to be paid out in uh, the coming weeks. If it gives people a boost, and it probably will give many people a good boost, no doubt it will give the government a boost too. The question is, however, if the extra money people receive now will be enough to offset the bills when they come through the letterboxes in November. November. Let's speak uh, to Sean Defoe, our political correspondent now. And a very good morning to you, Sean, and thanks as always for joining us. This is the beginning of getting the money into people's pockets that was promised in the budget. Yeah, that's right. So today the Cabinet is signing off on the dates that people are going to get the some 1.2 billion euro in payments that were approved under the cost of living package. So the first of them is actually coming as early as next week. This is the sort of autumn bonus, as it's being called, the, the double payment that's being done on top of the Christmas bonus, and that's going to be made from next Monday, the 17th of October, and then they've confirmed the date for the Christmas bonus as well, which is another double payment on those core social welfare rates, and that's going to be done on the the 5th of December. And then you've got a sort of a a range of dates through November, all of which will be available uh, online to see the Cabinet is, is signing off on. So you've got, for example... At the 1st of November is going to be the, the double child benefit payment in, in that sort of week. And the 14th of November, you're going to see the likes of the, the living alone allowance, 400 euros, 200 euros. Uh, sorry, 400 euros for the fuel allowance, 200 euros for the living alone allowance. You're also going to see the 500 euro payment to carers being made in the week of the 21st of November. And then the various other lump sums that they have promised to make to different people, be they that they are on disability in, in receipt of the um, work and family payment as well. They're all happening in the week of the 14th and the 21st of November. So basically, the government setting out the timeline so that people can know 
over the next couple of months, right, there's, there's eight different rounds of payments. Here's the ones that, that I'm in, mm. and here's how I can then, you know, plan their bills accordingly, I suppose, for the, the winter that we have coming. Okay, and uh, I take it uh, you don't have to apply for these payments, that they'll be paid automatically uh, in uh, the normal means. Exactly, but because they're all going to someone who is already on a payment or that you have to be on a payment already or, or in the, the ledger, if you like, of the Department of Social Protection to qualify, uh, you don't need to do anything. It's just going to be paid directly into the account. So they're saying, obviously, some of them, they, they are specifically saying the week of the 14th of November or the week of the 21st of November. So presumably, they'll be paid over a number of different days, depending on where you are in the country or however they manage their systems. But at least people can plan and say, right, that's it. Whereas the, the double payment... For example, on uh, the social welfare next week, people can know, right, that's the um, that's the 17th of October. They could know the 1st of November then for the, the child benefit as well. Very good. Uh, and uh, I take it uh, that uh, these uh, payments uh, for a uh, uh, large part uh, will be very welcomed by people uh, and uh, they'll come before the big bills which are expected in November. Yeah, that's it. Well, I mean, that's exactly what the government was trying to, to think of as well. Is, you know, November is sort of that usually that first big energy bill um, and that cost of living bill. Now, we don't have any information on when that mm. €200 euro cost of living payment exactly is going to be made, the, the one towards the electricity. We have been told November, all right. So you can sort of somewhat plan that in as well. But November, you know yourself, it, it's when the heating and the electricity starts getting a little bit expensive. And then also people are starting to ramp up into Christmas and they're thinking about, right, how, you know, what presents am I going to get? How am I going to look mm. after people? How am I going to get all the food and stuff together? So at least that money is there then to help people plan and to, to budget for whatever it is they happen to be doing through yeah. December, which is always an expensive month. Mm. Uh, and and uh, will it be signed off today then, the €600, Euro, uh, because uh, the bill's being every two months, uh, I think it's expected that we'll get 200 that is, everybody will get 200 uh, energy credits in uh, November and then January and then again in March. Yeah, that's not actually a cabinet today to be signed off on. They just discussed it a little bit last week, but they're still discussing some of the finer details, particularly around how prepaid customers are going to get there. Now, prepaid customers did get their credits in the end last time, uh, but it's sort of been wrapped up into that wider discussion that's happening around prepay and also around disconnections and how making sure that no prepaid customers are disconnected this winter. So we're we're not expected to get that particular date mm. today, um, but we, you know, that that is the general indication that they've given that it will be uh, November, it will be January, it will be March, sort of coinciding with those two months uh, electricity yeah. bills. It's incredible stuff really isn't it and it looks as though there's no end in sight when you see uh, the uh, bombs uh, landing in Kiev uh, the civilian attacks yesterday uh, and think about uh, what's happening in the world probably uh, no great surprise that the government is also going to talk about an oil shortage today and who would be prioritised under such a circumstance and we're talking about the potential of blackouts uh, there's a lot more of this ahead a lot more of this head, yeah, as you say. And look, uh, Tishik yesterday described what happened in Kyiv as further war crimes and evidence of war crimes in Russia de- deliberately targeting civilian areas after the, um, the apparent Ukrainian bombing of that bridge between Crimea and Russia. So retaliation shots. And we see the mobilization that's going on with Russia of extra troops as well. As you know, look, this is probably only going one way and that way is not going to be good for mm. a winter that in Ukraine is going to be very cold and very bloody. And here it, it is probably just going to be very cold and very expensive. But we are sort of feeling that that nothing nearly as bad as what they're going through but the offshoots uh, of this and where this is particularly going so as you mentioned a really interesting uh, a law that like so many of the laws I suppose we've talked about on the show Michael over yeah. the last three years is totally unprecedented and if you said it outside of normal times people will go well that's 
government overreach. That's the government taking power that they don't absolutely need. So uh, Minister Eamon Ryan is looking for priority drafting on a bill that would effectively allow the government to take over the running of the national oil supply if there was a severe or prolonged oil emergency is how it's worded now. Speaking to sources last night, the Department of Environment, they said, look, we think this is unlikely. We've got a good oil reserve here. It's not as big as other countries, but it's big enough to do it. And it, while it doesn't seem to be where the pressure is on at the minute, it's much more been on gas. But given the world we live in and what's going on, it is mm. much better to be pre- for, uh, prepared and forearmed than to not have something like this that we may never have to use. And the bill, I'd imagine it would be similar to what the COVID bills were in that it set out broad powers but not specific measures. So it gave quite broad and sweeping powers to the government to take over the oil supply and how they managed it after that uh, would be yet to be worked out. But I know within the Department of Energy, they have done war games over the last while about what would happen if there was a sudden cut off of gas, what would happen if there was a squeeze on oil and how they would manage that. Is there a technological solution that would limit how much you can actually physically get out at a pump of the forecourt if they needed to do that? And also, is there a list um, of, you know, priority people, priority uh, professions, you know, doctors, emergency services, guardie, etc., who would be prioritised for oil in that sort of scenario? So, look, mm. it's hopefully something none of us need, and yeah. we, we will be going down that road that this will be legislation that just falls off the books in six months or a year or however long it is. But um, it, it's certainly been looked at by the government. Yeah, bad enough to be just talking about it. Uh, but we're not quite finished with uh, COVID <laughs> either, uh, for that matter, uh, Sean. Uh, we're facing into the winter and uh, a potential twindemic of COVID and flu. And uh, this uh, will feed into the thinking and drawing up uh, the HSE service plan going into the winter. Yeah, absolutely. So the service plan and the COVID plan both going to Cabinet this morning from the Minister for Health and the HSE is going to publish it later on. And the, the, I think very much the focus is that everyone needs to be all hands on deck again for the health service this winter. The message that Stephen Donnelly is sending and that through the service plan there are going to be hundreds of additional staff, including 51 new emergency department consultants being recruited over the next little while. I don't know how long that recruitment is going to take. You would hope a good few of them will be in place for winter, but you just never know with health service recruitment uh, at the moment. And also things like diagnostic tests, if you need an MRI, for example, expanding the opening hours for those so that people will be able to get them at the evenings, you will be able to get them at the weekend to sort of try and clear some of that backlog. And then there's also a big focus in the winter plan on uh, local care, you know, supporting GP, supporting um, the the night doctor and and those different types of services so that you get fewer people going in to emergency departments and try not to overwhelm the hospital. So, look, it's a plan for a winter that all of the the health services Mm. sort of screaming at us is going to be difficult, particularly the INMO, because you say you've got all those other bugs we didn't really deal with the last two years and the flu season to come, as well as COVID, whatever COVID is going to look like. And, of course, those new... Uh, second boosters are now available for certain for certain age groups. I know someone in my family got it yesterday, which is sort of you, we've been so out of it and so we yeah. to go down mm. back to the vaccine centre again. Um, but we're, there we were. So yeah, that's a, another bit of cabinet again. Uh, okay, and I, I think the need for more consultants will be highlighted by this story today about one emergency department consultant being paid seven hundred and fifty-seven thousand euro uh, because he had to work so much. Another consultant paid six hundred and eighty thousand three hundred and seventy-five. They're incredible figures and the type of figures that will focus minds. Oh, absolutely. It's just to think that kind of money. I mean, we know we talk about money at the top of the health service in terms of the, the HC boss and the Secretary General of the Department of Health, but 700,000 euro and the majority of that, as you say, being 
pay for a compensatory rest, essentially, that they got extra rest time because they have been on the go so often. And you do hear about it because mm. consultants, as much as they are well paid in this country, they do do Trojan work in a lot of hospitals around the country, keeping certain units open and seeing people well outside of what would be considered normal and healthy working hours. So that's not something that's sustainable. We all know that's not sustainable mm. and something that certainly will be put, I'm sure, to the, the HSE bosses and to, to Minister Donnelly later. There's an awful lot on uh, the government's agenda today. They'll be discussing uh, public transport and uh, working with local authorities in that respect uh, and also compensation or or redress uh, for uh, those uh, who were in mother and baby homes. Yeah, this is so. The, the general scheme of this has obviously been outlined earlier on in the year by Minister Roger O'Gorman. He's now bringing a bit more detailed legislation to the cabinet this morning about how this would work and actually bring this forward. And one of the big questions is over the religious institutions and whether or not they're going to pay. And it seems so. Listen uh, to some of the reporting, particularly in the Irish Examiner, over the last couple of days that the religious institutions have not come to any agreement to, to pay towards this compensation scheme to, you know, something which I think most people in the country would think they absolutely should do and would be some way towards amends. It will never amend what a lot of them did, but it would be some way, a step in the right direction that has yet to be agreed. It would be interesting to see whether Minister Gorman thinks that is going to be agreed by the time this legislation passes. But look, it, it is a one step in the right direction, one step towards that redress scheme, but still a huge amount of questions in a, in a very complicated area. Indeed, and I'm sure we'll be hearing much more about that in the coming days. We leave there for the moment, though, Sean, and thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Thanks a minute, Michael. Cheers. That's our political correspondent, Sean Defoe. Now, let's uh, go to Creasland. Indeed, our thoughts and minds are never far from... The small town in Donegal, which has been devastated by the loss of 10 lives following uh, that tragic explosion on Friday. One of uh, the deceased is 14-year-old Leona Harper. Her mother, Donna, has been speaking to the local radio station there, Highland Radio, and she told Greg Hughes uh, about the anxiety uh, in the time that they heard there was an explosion in the garage uh, and the news coming through and the wait to see if Leona was actually there and possibly one of those who had lost their lives. Um, There was a lot of different things said. Um, I suppose in this moment in time I wouldn't want to go too much into what was said because of other families. Um, um, we We were told that I was told that she was trapped in there, um, but we were also told that there was a big possibility that it might not. She might be on her way to hospital. So um, the guards, the guardie, and other emergency services had asked my husband to stay in Letterkenny to check for her each time mm-hmm. the ambulance came through with somebody. Um, later on. Um, Quite later on, then um, everybody was accounted for in the hospital, um, and then with the, then they had realised then that um, Leona, Leona just didn't make it out. Um, so yes, it was, it was a long time waiting, but we really appreciate um, everybody, um, absolutely everybody from. The doctors, the nurses, the the guardy, to the mountain rescue, to, just to everybody. Um, and I would, I, I just don't want to mention his name on the radio, but I did personally know the digger driver. Um, 
uh, massive thank you to him because he did, he just didn't stop until he got her. It's unbearable to think about, but they did get Leona some 24 hours after the explosion. Yes, yeah, 24 hours before we got her. Yeah. And she, she was the last taken out. Um, but, but again, um, the doctors and everything, they were, everybody was amazing. Um, they, they treated the whole, the whole scene from start to finish with nothing more than respect for anybody and dignity and the way that they handled and the way that they were able to take, take her out. Yeah. You know, it was... Um, we still we we, um, we we don't have her home yet. Um, we're hoping to find out today exactly when we will get her. Mm. Um, Leona was a beautiful girl. She was never any trouble. Um, she had so many amazing friends, and I would like to thank them as well because they have been sending messages and they've wrote letters and. We, um, we went to her school. She goes to school in Mulroy and Mulford. Mm. Um, we we went there yesterday. They did a, a thing for her. There's massive, great support, um, especially for my other two boys as well. Anthony and Jamie, because Jamie still goes to school there. Anthony went to school there. Um, and, and it was great support for me and my husband to be there. And it's, it's just been outstanding. We've had messages from all over the world. Um, Giving condolences, people have been amazing, you know, yeah. offering anything we can do. It's incredible how appreciative people are for the support that's been expressed from people uh, across the country and as you heard there from uh, across uh, the world uh, that's uh, Donna Harper speaking to Highland Radio's Greg Hughes about little Leona, her 14-year-old daughter who was killed in that explosion on Friday in Creasla. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, a special joint Oireachtas committee was established uh, to look at uh, services and supports that are provided by the state uh, for autistic people. Uh, the committee was established in February and should report to the Oireachtas next month and make a, a number of recommendations. Let's speak to Sinn Féin TD for Loud and East Mead, Rory Murakou, who joins us now. A very good morning to you, Rory Murakou. Uh, thanks for joining us uh, this morning. You're not a, a member of this committee, but you have spoken to the committee uh, as someone who's been approached by many parents with uh, autistic children uh, to outline uh, their situations and the concerns uh, that they have. Uh, but you also told the committee about your own son who has autism. Uh, I think uh, the experience uh, that your son Turlock has had in education has been generally positive, has it not? Oh, oh no, it, it, it definitely has been and there's an element of learning particularly on our part in relation to what works for, for Turlock. Look, Turlock has been in, in mainstream. Initially, um, in his first period in school, he actually had, he would have had glue ear and we thought he had language delay. We weren't even sure in relation to autism until, until later. So he was in a language class in uh, St. Joseph's National School and then later he went into mainstream. But uh, as I said in the statement, Turlock couldn't have operated uh, not only without the teachers, obviously, mm. but with the resource teaching and the SNAs that he's had over the years. And that's not to mm. say that there, there aren't moments, you know, kids with autism will have, and particularly if there's language delay issues or, or 
worse as can be the case. You know, there'll be incredible levels of frustration and whatever. But look, I found the staff to be absolutely brilliant in relation to facilitating him. And now he's in uh, Ophi College, mm-hmm. again in mainstream and with great supports from SNA and the wider staff. Okay, your experience is... There will still be moments, Michael, because that, that, that just sure. goes with the territory. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure. Uh, uh, your, your experience, though, uh, hasn't uh, been one uh, that uh, everybody could uh, testify to in terms of uh, the positive account, despite uh, those moments that you talk about. Before you tell us about some of the problems in the system and some of the frustration of parents, uh, can I ask you about Turlock? getting diagnosed. Uh, was there a delay in that? Uh, because it, that's an issue that was raised uh, by Pierre Stardy very strongly last week. I know that there are huge levels in relation to diagnosis. We, at the time, we would have got Turlock diagnosed privately. Um, it was just a case of that seemed like the the only way to get it done. And in fairness, the school at the time was probably facilitating that for many parents Mm. because it was the only way that they could make sure that they could get the adequate services into the school you know to to help the child and and the rest of the class and and whatever because obviously like a, a child with greater needs you know, that there are particular issues that they can also create within a, a school setting. So it's ensuring that you're you're getting the best service for all those children across the board in relation to learning. Mm. And uh, if there's delays, time is lost and that can be precious time that can't be bought back. Well, we're constantly talking about early intervention. And, and yes, like if we were to talk about, just, you know, autistic services across the board, you know, I, I've dealt with people who are running early learning centres. There are obviously parents who have issues, and that's from ch- kids right through to kids who are going to third level, right through to adults when services sometimes just drop off altogether and and, and aren't really there. And uh, there's an element of us failing citizens across the board. And that's without talking about the fact that at times there haven't been uh, psychological services, that there haven't been the assessment, uh, let's say, methodology or protocols that you'd like, as in particularly timelines. And, and then even beyond that, you know, you can get an assessment. It's ensuring that you can get those services, particularly if you're talking about speech and language therapy or you're talking about occupational therapy. And like Turlock has got some element of speech and language therapy. And again, it was it was very, very beneficial. But a serious amount of the heavy lifting has probably been done not only by his mother, but also by like resource teachers and SNAs and, and, and others, you know, that have you know, made up for whatever gaps there there may have been. Also, I don't want to, to a degree, I was talking about Torlock from no, a point of view. Yeah, of, yeah, I was yeah, just yeah. laying it out that I yeah. have skin in this game. Yeah. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But there's parents who obviously have children with far, far greater needs. And like you were highlighting, I, I think, uh, the problems that some parents have uh, with children going from primary school to secondary school in particular. Yeah, you, like I've had a number of parents, even in the last year and in the last two weeks, who've been into me, which is the reason why I decided to speak at the committee. And it was the fact that they had been through, let's say, a primary school, had really, really good services in the sense of ASD units, which their kids specifically needed, but they would not be suited to um, to mainstream. And they were seeing just the lack of choice in relation to the schools that they could actually 
they will probably they will apply to a number of schools, and um, even those that have ASD units, of which there are a limited number, they're never sure that they're going to actually get a place just due to the demand that is there. And here, as I say, when we talk, when I talk to people involved in early learning, or I talk to anyone involved in the early stages of primary school or anything, what they're telling me is, on some level, it's frightening the numbers that are coming through and we just need to ensure that we have the capacity um, to deal with that. So that's why I put the question, um, obviously, yeah. to the IPPN and the TUI and the others that were there. And, and they spoke about a number of things about yeah. the need, obviously, for uh, an organisational capacity within schools for managing um, special needs. Okay, but and ju- just to say to listeners, that's the Teachers Union of Ireland and the Irish Primary Principals Network uh, and those uh, working in the education sector uh, uh, and there was some agreement uh, I think with the points that you were making uh, in particular to the admissions process. Oh no, the admissions process in fairness, it was uh, Pora Clerken of the IPPN who just said in relation to special needs children and particularly if we're talking about kids with autism that there needs to be more uh, that the admissions uh, act would need to be changed from a point of view of facilitating um, facilitating schools as opposed to just applying 12 months beforehand that you should be applying 24 months beforehand and that would give schools the you know the time to do the organizational pieces to ensure that they have the capacity and in some cases to ensure that they have the ASD units up in play because look we've all we've, we've all known about the conversation at the end of the year that there's a significant amount of people coming through, uh, of, of children coming through primary school mm. who do not have allocated places in secondary school. Mm. Um, and we all know that the numbers are there because of the department have them, the NCSE have them, and on some level people are saying, how is this happening? Yeah. And on some level people are saying schools need to be forced uh, and maybe there may be cases where this needs to happen and, you know, you, you use the... Uh, Section 37 from that point of view but I think we have to give schools a decent run-in time and I think another request that had been said is that there was a sufficient time that would also be provided that the schools could interact, the secondary schools could interact with the primary schools from a point of view of knowing the, you know, the children and their particular needs and all the rest mm. of it and that you could just ensure that you have everything lined up as I say, from teacher supports to resource supports to SNA supports. And we all know that there's a wider set of issues which probably need to be dealt with in the sense of uh, SLTs, OTs, and maybe that's the sort of work that could also be embedded within the school system. Okay. But what happens if there another... isn't a place for the child? Are they put back a year or what? Well, in, in, in fairness, when uh, Pora Clerken did speak of this, what he also said was, if we did allow for 24 hours, if we did, sorry, months, if we did allow yeah. for 24 months, he said in a worst case scenario, you may have to hold the child back. You know, if, if you know, there mm. may be a particular set of circumstances, but that there would be no excuse or, or like over 36 months or, or three years, it would definitely um, be within the capacity of all schools to deliver on what was needed. Well, if you don't mm. have... We saw we saw the issue before. We saw the issue on prime time in relation to children who were waiting and and, and didn't have places. And mm. um, like you always think that last minute that the system picks into play and somebody gets a place. I take it it gets more complicated if children are moving into the area. Yes, 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 yes. 
yeah, well, Piersk, so 100%, you know, and I, I, I suppose that's again why you need to give the schools the the time. Like we're dealing at the minute with, you know, obviously not mm-hmm. enough housing estates being built, but new housing estates being built in, you know, if you even look in Dundalk and its environs, mm. and so therefore you're going to have new families moving in, you're going to have a changed demographic, and just based on the way things are, a certain element or a certain percentage of those children will be children with special needs, that, and some of them with really, really very specific needs. And, and, and there aren't spare places around it. They're, they're planning to capacity. There aren't planning uh, on the basis that somebody could move into the area, uh, which doesn't figure in uh, what's expected uh, from the information that they get from the demographics coming up through primary school. Now, well, so we know in all sets of planning, even if we're talking about hospitals or anything, mm. there has to be um, planning has to take into place that you 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 need to plan with a capacity for future proofing that there would be an allowance for more places on the basis that you can't tell completely the numbers that you're going to get. But at this point in time, we're nowhere next to near it. We are not planning in secondary school for the places that we have in primary school. And as I say, if I talk about even pre-primary and early learning, uh, there is a particular issue there in relation to um, some of the supports that are provided in the sense they don't Mm. provide enough support for a sufficient amount of hours to look after um, children with, as I say, high needs. And that's another particular issue that I'd like to bring up with this committee and ensure that get, it gets written into the report as well. As okay. I said, there are no shortage of, of, of issues yeah. no, in relation sure. to mm. dealing for, with uh, special needs children and particularly autism, which is the issue we're dealing with at the minute. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you, though, for joining us uh, this morning. Sinn Féin, TD for Loud and East Meath, Rory O'Murakou. Michael Reed on LMFM. I suppose none of us really know what to say about uh, one of uh, the worst tragedies in recent years. But we can show solidarity, support and empathy and indeed express our condolences to the people of Creasla. Let's speak uh, to the chair of Meath County Council, Independent Councillor Nick Killian, who's on uh, the line. And uh, a very good morning to you, Nick. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Meath County Council is making this possible for many of our, our listeners in a number of ways. Yes, well, um, I had the honour yesterday to sign the uh, book of condolence uh, to the people of Creeslock and to the people of Donegal uh, in our foyer of the offices at Bovinda House in Meath County Council. And I would encourage anybody who has the time to drop up to Bovinda House and, and sign the book. Or you can do it online uh, if you go onto the Facebook uh, Meath County Council social media page. There's an opportunity there to click on and sign uh, on the condolence section that's uh, highlighted in blue. So on behalf of the people of Meath and on behalf of um, Meath County Council and uh, I just want to, as you said, there's no words, but just to send our deepest sympathies to the people of Creeslock, particularly uh, today, this morning, as the funerals start. Mm. And all we can do is just offer our prayers and, 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 and just send whatever wishes we can to anybody we know living in that part. And there are quite an amount of people from Donegal living here in, in County Meath and our thoughts are, are with them this morning. And I think all we want to do is just show solidarity with the people 
uh, of Donegal, mm. but in particular the people of Creestock this morning. Yeah, because it's not just a case of what can you say, it's also a case of what can you do, and there is no obvious answer to that. We are helpless, uh, uh, and there's no solution to that helplessness, but we can uh, express our solidarity, as you say. Uh, I think that'll be important to a lot of people. It will, and I think just watching the television coverage over over last night um, and people being interviewed, I think the people feel that they're being supported. And I'd have to, obviously, I think we also have to think about those who took part in the rescue efforts on Friday uh, Friday afternoon and Friday night, the emergency services, the Gardaí, the fire brigade, the civil defence, the paramedics, the good people that came across from Northern Ireland to assist, the doctors, the HSE personnel, but in particular the community, the way they got in there uh, without considering the safety of their own lives Mm. um, to try and rescue and do what they could. And, you know, listening to the doctor yesterday on, on, on the television and his role in in going, being one of the first on the scene, it's just, it's heartbreaking. And when one sees the photo of little Shauna uh, Flanagan Garner, age five, it breaks your heart. Yeah. And I think all we can do is just offer the support. And I'm also thinking today, you know, having an involvement in LMETB, uh, the students in Mulroy College and the students in Skullmurra Primary School. And the healing has now got to take place and hopefully it will over the weeks, months and years ahead. Yeah. So, I, I think it's uh, these uh, outpourings of, of grief uh, from every corner of the country uh, and uh, expressions of solidarity that will give people support. It, it can really uh, act in a way that's inexplicable because there's something in us as humans that we respond to the humanity of others. Uh, but Vinda House, uh, you can go and uh, take a pen out uh, and express your condolences. Uh, how long will that? How long will that uh, be available to people to do? The It'll be there notice? for the next two weeks. Two weeks, okay. And then and online for people. Online uh, who, for people. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps in County Loud, for example, or or further afield, and that's on mead.ie. It's on me.ie or go on to Facebook. Um, to Facebook is what I'm more familiar with. I'm not on Twitter, but it's also on Twitter as well. So across the social media platforms, you can actually um, link in and sign uh, and send a, a message of condolence. Uh, and that will be forwarded on uh, at some point, sometime uh, over the next uh month it'll be sent to the chairperson of Donegal County Council and uh, Liam Blaney is the chair up there and that's who we will be sending the condolence books to okay. and they'll eventually get to Creaselock. Okay uh, sometime over the next couple of weeks in Bavinda House yes. or online at mead.ie if people want to express their condolences. Thank you indeed Thanks, for joining Michael. us Thank as you always. Very Thank much. you indeed. So that's uh, the Cahirlach of Mead County Council Nick Killian. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, some comments coming to us uh, today. Somebody says putting the government in charge of oil is not a good idea, especially not in this country. I wouldn't let them look after a flock of sheep. Uh, well, don't hold back on the criticism, please. Uh, our caller says uh, diesel has gone up to nearly two euro a litre again, and it's like they're taking the 600 euro off you before they even give it to you. Well done, says our caller. Uh, somebody else in touch with us uh, about. Um, their daughter's 
Hillary's child, uh, a two-year-old boy uh, who has autism. Uh, this is Hillary and Kells, and she says they're not getting any help at all from anybody. Uh, uh, another text uh, on foot of uh, that discussion earlier on from somebody who says, 20 years on and nothing has changed. Listening to the interview this morning with Rory Murakou, our children with additional needs are always playing catch-up if they're relying on the public system, that is. Early intervention is protracted and there's no continuity of service. Parents have been and will continue to be forced to fund private therapies so our children can flourish. Thank you indeed uh, for your call. Indeed, it echoes uh, what Rory Murku was saying, uh, that they went private to get their son diagnosed as having autism, which is one of the biggest steps in getting treatment and how important that treatment can be in terms of development. Thank you if you have been in touch with us today. Now, if you were listening to us yesterday, you'd have heard landlords tell us why they don't think that there should be a ban on evictions. Let's get a different perspective on that now. Uh, John Mark McCafferty, who is uh, the CEO of uh, the housing agency Threshold, joins us now. Good morning to you, John Mark, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, would, would, would you fav- favour the idea of a, a temporary ban on evictions? Um, we, we would. I mean, as the, as the national homeless uh, housing charity that prevents homelessness and works in the private rented sector, um, we think that um, there should be consideration given to a moratorium on evictions. Um, we don't say it lightly um, because we know, uh, and it has been articulated by the landlords' organisations, that there are consequences and impacts um, on on landlords and on their properties if you do impose um, an eviction moratorium. We're mindful of that. Um, you know, and we're mindful of, of the impact on people who, who need to move into their property or need, need to sell their property. Um, but what we're facing right now is um, of such proportions that, um, you know, families are facing notices of termination that result in them losing their homes and there is nowhere else for them to go. Um, I've, I've spoken with you, mm. you know, recently on a number of occasions about the just the fundamental lack of other um, new uh, private rented housing coming into the market. Um, so there are no alternatives. There are no other options. And in fact, what's most worrying in, uh, is that local authorities are um, can't um, house people in emergency accommodation. So up to now, we were talking about, well, we want to prevent homelessness and we want to prevent you know, families and individuals from having to get into emergency accommodation. We are now in a situation that local authorities don't even have um, uh, any capacity in emergency accommodation mm. to house those people. Do you accept so the we, argument, though, that landlords are, are making uh, that you could make this already bad situation worse and a whole lot worse, uh, that uh, you could compound the crisis by having fewer properties available to rent because landlords will just throw their hands up and say, oh, to hell with this. It's too bureaucratic and too much trouble to be bothered with. Yeah, I've huge sympathy for that. Um, I've huge sympathy for smaller landlords um, who, who have been providing um, housing for families and individuals you know, for many years um, and, and whose options have been curtailed over the last number of years, firstly by the, the pandemic and, and the public health response. And, and now, in terms of the, the discussions, so it's with a heavy heart, and, and it's and it's reluctantly that I, you know that I'm saying in the threshold, saying that consideration 
needs to be given to a moratorium on evictions on a time-bound basis. It, it shouldn't be for an extended period of time for all. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The reasons that the landlords are saying... Um, they are landlord properties, but um, they are also homes of people. And we are seeing a doubling of the number of people who are, are facing real tenancy terminations. Um, and when they come to the end of their, their notice of termination, um, many of them simply have nowhere to go. And I mean, you know, they don't have alternative rented accommodation to go to. They, they don't have emergency accommodation provided by local authorities. They are they're, they're they're sleeping in cars, they're couch surfing, they're sleeping rough. They are in very compromising situations with family or friends, um, and at the same time trying to kind of uh, get on with life and bring children to schools and 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 um, you know and go to work and, and feed themselves and, mm. and clothe themselves. And um, so that's why we are saying that uh, we we don't take this lightly. Um, but um, this should be part of this uh, moratorium should be part of a wider um, concerted effort by all stakeholders including um, landlords representatives um, government and uh, and organisations like ourselves to look at short term and medium term measures to address what is very much an unprecedented and an escalating situation. Just just to keep a a roof over people's head, um, are you you talking about an outright ban or uh, would landlords continue to be able to evict people if they weren't paying their rent or if uh, they were causing untold damage? Yeah, I mean, obviously untold damage, antisocial behaviour, those kind of things, you should be able to still um, continue um, to... uh, to, to proceed with um, an eviction. 
Um, the question about kind of non-payment of rent, um, that is a more difficult one because obviously if if it can be proven that there's um, it, it's just an unwillingness to pay the rent and, and a willingness for arrears to build up, the problem is um, trying to um, establish if that's the case in a situation where people uh, may be genuinely um, struggling to pay the rent in the first place. Mm. And, and we know, and again, this is a, an issue I, I've spoken with you um, at several times uh, across the, the months and years uh, is rent levels so that um, people on middle and lower incomes are already struggling and, and maybe going into arrears with, as we move into um, higher energy costs, higher broader costs of living. That's a more difficult one. Really. Should, should, should the council pay the rent if a HAP tenant isn't paying their portion to the council uh, because that is quite often a small amount of money uh, but if it's not paid to the council the council doesn't pay what is the vast bulk of what is due in rent to the landlord. Yeah, that is a concern as well because obviously yes, it's, it's part of the kind of the HAP arrangement that you, uh, the tenant must pay their, their share and if they're not paying then obviously the, the government's um, um, housing assistance payment is, is suspended. Um, we have asked for in, in the budget, uh, we, we asked for an arrears fund um, and I think we need to look at um, work with say the likes of the Money Advice and Budgeting Service and the department to, to consider you know, what's really going on there in terms of arrears, uh, people struggling, struggling with rents and trying to address that. And in fact, um, in fairness, the government are looking at, um, as, as part of their National Homeless Action Committee, there is a, there's a group there that's looking at arrears within the HAP system. So they are, um, as I understand it, they, are, they will report back to the minister and to the department on some of those very issues. In, in the coming and and you're talking about arrears owed to whom? To the landlord or to the council? Because, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you'll have situations, just uh, as an example, where uh, the tenant will pay €20 to the council and the council will pay €1,000 to the landlord. But if the tenant doesn't pay the €20 to the council, the council doesn't pay the €1,000 to the landlord and the landlord gets nothing. Yeah, I I, I think it's focusing on... um Arrears that are building up among um, tenants who are not who are not paying um, or who can't and, and on a basis of a can't pay, so um, they will be considering um, what could be done to try and, and um, address that issue because clearly mm. um, arrears um, need to be addressed and, and and they can end the tenancy and then you're in kind of a much bigger uh, situation of people losing those tenancies. Um, facing homelessness and yeah. costs if they do actually access um, emergency accommodation. Okay, but um, the, 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 this is legislation that really is arguing that two wrongs make a right, isn't it? Or um, whatever way you want to put it, uh, that because the tenant isn't paying, the council isn't paying, uh, and the landlord gets nothing, uh, it's hardly an excuse for the council not to pay what is due to the landlord. Yeah, yeah I think that that's, that's a reasonable argument, um, and I think part of the this, this working group mm. need, needs to look at kind of all of those those things because clearly HAP needs to work for 
all three partners it needs to work for the government who's, who's, who's paying huge amounts in the housing assistance payment it needs to work for the, the, the landlord um, whose property is hosting um, families and individuals and it has to work for the, the, the tenant generally who, who, who is a kind of on a lower income on a lower wage um, and those things those three things need to need to work together and my understanding is that's that's what the, the objective of that of that group is, is, is looking at okay uh, I don't know. How long has there been a crisis? Ten years? Is it more? Um, uh, and here we are talking about extraordinary measures. Uh, I'm sure nobody thinks that we should be in a position uh, that we're talking about uh, a moratorium, a ban on evictions. Um, it should be straightforward enough. Uh, but that, I suppose, in itself describes the scale of the crisis. Yes, and, you know, this affects affects. All stakeholders it affects the landlords. It affects um, the tenants, obviously, that we are assisting and advising. Um, it, it's a, a big challenge for government. This stems, and again, I've said this, you know, before on LMFM. This stems mostly from the fact that um, uh, the country stopped building um, social housing, and, and also there was a mismatch in terms of wider housing supply. In terms of where it was built and, and, the, and the types of houses for the for the households that, that are forming now, um, and you know since the 1980s, an and, and over reliance on the private sector to provide um, housing in the private rented sector, and it's fine while it works, but when you have a lack of supply, when you have a lack of affordability, um, and, and where you have problems with things like um, standards and repairs. Um, you have a system which isn't working for, certainly not working for, for tenants. And now we have a situation where families and, and, and people are uh, facing uh, you know, a, a much higher rate, effectively double the rate of uh, notices of termination, the ending of their tenancies of their homes um, than they were before uh, the pandemic. Um, and just with such few options, um, they are falling on the mercy of family and friends. Or, or, or worse scenarios okay. because of that lack of um, emergency accommodation. And, and really, um, part, a big part of the solution is the provision of, say, social housing, cost rental housing, and just wider housing supply. But we know that there are all sorts of barriers there and, 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 and things that are dampening the, uh, the delivery there. So um, it, it, it's, not a, it's not a happy situation. Um, and, and some interventions need to be for the, the long term some like this need to be for the short term and need to be time bound. Okay. Well, there's lots of advice and indeed help available from Threshold, threshold.ie and you have a helpline number as well, one 800 That's one 800 John Mark, thank you indeed uh, for joining thank us uh, this morning. John Mark McCafferty is uh, the CEO of Threshold. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Well, we'll follow on from uh, that conversation uh, with uh, Threshold uh, because there wouldn't be a, a need uh, for a ban on evictions if there was more property available for people to rent. So what is the government doing about it? Well, as you know, the government introduced a vacant homes tax in the budget. But what will that do in terms of making more property available? 
Not a whole lot, it seems, according to Labour Party TD for Louth and East Meath, Jed Nash, who's on the line. And a very good morning to you, Jed Nash. Thanks for joining us. Uh, you've been looking at the figures from revenue uh, that were provided to you by the Minister for Finance. Uh, and it, it seems as though uh, there's 49,000 properties out of 57 uh, properties that are, are registered as vacant that will not have to pay the tax. That's right. Uh, <clears throat> that's because of... Oh, that was a short conversation. <laughs> uh, we'll try to get uh, Jed Nash back on uh, the line. This is uh, uh, the equivalent of 15% of those who have registered ownership of a vacant house uh, that will be due to pay uh, vacant property tax as a result. It's 8,000 homes next year and will that bring those homes to the market or, or not is another day's question. Uh, and uh, it, it seems as though the yield is to be about €3 million Euro or €350 Euro a home. It's three times what would be the local property tax. I think we've uh, managed to get Jed Nash back uh, on the line. Uh, were you surprised at, at how few properties uh, would be liable for the tax? Yeah, uh, I, I, I certainly was, and, and, and those figures were given to me in response to a parliamentary question that I raised after the minister's uh, budget speech. We, we've been arguing for a vacant uh, homes tax for a number of years now because, Michael, the, the low-hanging fruit in terms of bringing properties back into uh, supply uh, you know, is, is vacant homes we, we see all around us in our own communities. We see it in Drawler, see it in Dundalk, see it in RD, see it in East Mays, uh, vacant properties that could be brought into use very, very easily. And it's really important that the tax itself is set at a rate that would disincentivise somebody hanging on to a property that really should be brought to market and made available for for, uh, for purchasers. Uh, we don't believe that the rate at which this will be set uh, will make much of a difference. On average, it's going to cost somebody about €350. Euro. And if you look at, you know, the way property prices are going, um, why would somebody, um, you know, decide to, um, you know, release their property into the market when this time next year they might be able to gain an additional 10 to 20,000 euros albeit the rate of increase is slowing down it is still you know property prices are still increasing so mm. uh, that could be easily absorbed by somebody who just wants to you know uh, make it you know a more significant profit on profit on a property that might be vacant because they see the price rising all, all, all of the time so okay, well, okay. What, 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 what is a vacant property <laughs> I think uh, the most ridiculous of questions are, are always the, the, the most interesting of ones. Uh, but is a vacant property a house, let's say, that has nobody living in it? Or is it a building that is part used uh, with a shop on the ground floor and what could potentially be apartments above it? Well, that, that, that's exactly it. And, and that, that begs the question then about, you know, urban planning and actually what we consider to be residential units. And, you know, should we be making it easier to transform, for example, properties above shops into into um residential units that are habitable and we absolutely should and, and to be fair government they've been talking about it for quite some time planning challenges for example uh, if you were to actually convert property over shop uh, into uh, into residential use so the, these figures Michael and it's important mm. that listeners understand where these figures came from uh, this was in the context of the local property tax review last year people would have got documentation with the revenue commissioners asking ask you to revalue your property so they got obviously you know I think about 1.62 million uh, responses and and uh, the, the, the figures that the Department of Finance and the Minister is working off at the moment uh, are self declared.
declared figures. And I think that's important to say as well. Yeah. People themselves are saying, look, I haven't lived in this property or nobody's lived here for the last uh, you know, 12 months plus. Right. That's how they define a vacant property in this context. But remember, when you look at those figures, you also, I think, must look at the CSO's figures from the census that was taken just a few months ago. And they say that there are about 166,000 vacant properties right. in Ireland. So yeah. the truth may be somewhere in the middle, may not be 57,000 properties. It could very well be in excess of 100,000 uh, experts in the field that I talk to say that's probably more accurate. Uh, and the point that I make and the overwhelming point is here there are probably too many exemptions mm. uh, for this vacant uh, property tax. Uh, but there's it good is, reason for those exemptions, declared. is there not? Pardon? There's good reason for those exemptions. There are for some. There absolutely is. But if you look at the figures, for example, in Louth, okay, uh, the local property tax figures that were published um, just uh, back, back in July, in fact, the national average is about 22% of people uh, where properties are vacant say mm. 22% say that they're vacant because they're reformed. Mm. It's about a third in Louth, okay? Yeah. Um, and, and one would wonder, um, you know, at that rate of refurbishment, that's not necessarily evident in the community. This is self-declared and this is the point. Mm. Now, yeah. that's, that, that, that's not to say that revenue is the amount of challenges. Ha- have you been refurbishing it for 10 years or are you in the process of refurbishing it? I suppose is a valid question, but the idea of refurbishing it is a good reason for it to be vacant so that the work can take place or that you're uh, selling the property or, or renting it out uh, or looking to rent it out as the case may be. I, I, absolutely, yeah. and, and there are very valid reasons why some properties are vacant. Mm. When somebody is in hospital. That's somebody a, is in hospital yeah, or in yeah, long-term yeah. residence nursing home care yeah. or the, the, the house is going through probate yeah. because maybe a, yeah. a, a, somebody has passed away yeah. so um, but I think you know we, we know much more this time next week or later on next week when the Minister publishes the finance bill but precisely what exemptions he's bringing in and why those exemptions are being uh, introduced yeah. uh, the, the net point I'm making here Michael is that we've had you know vacancy we can see with our own eyes yeah. in our own towns and our own communities vacant properties going back many many years that aren't being brought back into use they're a low hanging I didn't hear the interview that you had with Threshold, but I can understand and I imagine uh, the, the points that were being made. And I'm sure that vacancy was an issue that was being raised. Uh, if we can turn around properties much more quickly, we get people into those properties. Mm. It makes environmental sense as well. These are properties that are already linked to services, water, electricity, and mm. so on. So uh, at, at, a, at a very limited expense. And by the way, there are grants available from government, to be fair, under the Creek Conaher scheme. Yeah. But, uh, but, but, but you're go- always going to have these things where people are, are selling a property and that's why it's vacant or, or they're refurbishing it or they're sick or somebody's in a nursing home and you're not going to force families to sell up uh, the family home if uh, the parents are Fair in a nursing not. home. You know, so, 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 I mean, what, what interests me, Michael, though, is the gap between the local property tax uh, assessment which is 57,000 properties and the census. Okay. I'm losing the line there. I'll try and stay with you for a, a moment. Just uh, when it comes to the, those potential uh, apartments uh, uh, above shop units, I take it they're not included in this, that they're considered by many people to be rooms uh, above shops. Or, or considered for the context of the local property tax to be actually commercial premises. Yeah. And, and, and this is the point, you know. Um, so we need to view those as potentially habitable residents. Uh, there's been, you know, long discussions nationally over the last few years. Mm. A lot wide range of discussions about what can be done. I mean, for example, and no matter what town you're talking about, there's lots of them, and everybody, there's lots of people who'd love to live in town. 
Well, absolutely. And I mean, it's part, part of the solution in terms of you know, rejuvenating our town centres, rejuvenating Drogheda, rejuvenating Dundalk, the centre of our towns that become living places again, 24-7 communities. And that then would encourage you know, shops and cafes and bars and so on to open uh, longer. Uh, there'd be vibrant areas where people can, can actually live with the services that they need on their doorsteps. It wasn't that long ago when people were <clears throat> living over the shop uh, and, and, and living living you know, good lives. Mm. Uh, so it's important that we do have incentives. Like I've been arguing for a long time that the Living Cities Initiative could be it should be extended to Drogheda and Bundog to provide you know incentives for people to um, refurbish the properties over their you know older the older buildings the older stock that we have for example in the middle of Drogheda uh, great potential uh, you know beautiful spaces uh, that could be redeveloped very very easily there are some planning restrictions for example that are in place uh, and they need to be addressed and people need to be incentivised and, and to be fair the Creek Conehead scheme does actually incentivise people to renovate those kinds of buildings but they're not without their challenges Okay, we we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us, uh, Labour Party TD, for Lao Denise Mead, Jed Nash. Now, as you heard in uh, the headlines, uh, the first of uh, the 10 people uh, who lost their lives in Creasla, 24 year old Jessica Gallagher, is uh, to be buried this morning at 11 o'clock. Her aunt Dolores uh, was speaking to Greg Hughes on the local radio station Highland Radio yesterday. Yeah. Jessica was, as as the, her photographs show, the most beautiful young woman. She 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 was um, very artistic uh, from a very young age and um, very much interested in fashion and design and clothing. And um, she pursued that. Uh, she wanted to make something of her life. And she she um, after doing her leaving cert, she went to Northern Ireland and did a year in her art course and developed her portfolio and uh, secured a place in college in Paris and fashion and design and um, she she really loved it so much and she she did well and she worked so so hard she worked so hard and uh, the the middle year of the course um, the students all go to uh, another location, maybe Milan or somewhere where uh, uh, clothing is produced and only two of the class are selected each year to go to their most prestigious position, which is to go to Shanghai. And she was one of the two selected that year. So she spent actually the first semester in Shanghai and then the COVID lockdown came and she finished the academic year on the laptop from the kitchen. Uh, but she she qualified uh, as a fashion designer and did very well. And then, of course, the uh, lockdown was there, and had, as we all know, COVID had a huge impact on the fashion industry. So she pursued uh, <clears throat> and eventually um, was to start finally her job <clears throat> as a fashion designer. Today, today was the day she was starting her new. Uh, professional life as a fashion designer in Belfast and she had just finished her first commission. A stolen life if ever it really is really really hard to listen to that. Uh, That's uh, Jessica's aunt Dolores explaining to Highland Radio yesterday how Jessica should have started that new job in Belfast today. Uh, The terrible reality of it and really is just horrendous is that Jessica is uh, to be buried, to be laid to rest this morning at 11 o'clock. Can we please keep in our prayers her boyfriend and the other people who have been seriously injured? 
there, there will be life-changing uh, injuries among those poor people. And, and, you know, those are injuries that we can see. There are also injuries of the heart and soul that will be with people for the rest of their lives. So just to keep those people in our prayers and in our support in the years to come. That's uh, Jessica Gallagher's aunt Dolores speaking to Highland Radio. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, if you're not in a pension scheme and you're aged between 23 and 60 years of age, earning over €20,000 a year, you are going to be automatically enrolled into a scheme beginning in 2024. It's part of a, a government proposal which will be gradually phased in over a decade. Let's speak to Michael Taft, researcher with the SIP2 Trade Union. Good morning, Michael, and thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. And this, morning. Is, this is a positive move, isn't it? It is a positive move. I, I move. Ireland is one of the few, in fact, maybe the only EU country that does not have what is called a second-tier pension. You know, most economies, including our own, we have a state pension, which is paid through PRSI. Everybody's familiar with that. But we didn't have a second-tier uh, uh, pension, which actually would top up uh, and ensure, you know, greater resources uh, for, for retirement. Uh, so this is a welcome move, mm. given that 35 percent, it's estimated 35 percent of uh, of the private sector is covered by uh, a pension, which means there's probably about 750,000 uh, employees that are not covered by a pension, and this is what that's hoping to address. Okay, and uh, in other words, 65% uh, don't yeah, have a pension right. plan. And I, I take it if you were to break that down by age, uh, you'd find that more older people are putting away something for their pension, uh, but probably start too late in doing it. That's true. It's, it, younger people don't do it simply because younger people don't really think about, you know, uh, what happens when they're 65 years old. Yeah. They're very young and, you know, uh, they know that day's never going to come. Well, they want to buy a house, they want to buy a car, they have a family, they have other obligations, there's lots to do. Ab- and ab- Absolutely. Yep. So it's also very difficult for many employees who are low and even average incomes with, you say, as you say, with children, with the mortgage and childcare costs. So it's very difficult for them to uh, save for a pension. Uh, many employers do not offer a occupational pension scheme. Uh, so this is, attempt, this is an attempt to address, uh, address that gap. Okay, and employers uh, may not be too happy about this uh, because they'll have to match the contributions that the employees are, are paying, and that will be up to 6% in 10 years. That's true. It will, it, the government is intending this program will start in 2024. So that means that employees will start paying 1.5% of their wage uh, into the pension scheme. That will be matched by employers, and uh, the state will also provide a top-up. So it will be 1.5% in 2024, but it's hoped that by 2034 this will increase to 6% for employees, 6% for employers, and an additional 2%. Uh, of the wage uh, uh, offered by the state, so it's it's a consider it's a considerable sum that people will be asked to set aside uh, uh, in terms of their current uh, uh, current income. They'll be set aside, you know, up to six and a half percent. 
but of course, which they will then have a higher income in retirement than what they uh, might have if they just relied on the state pension. Yeah, well, you do hear people saying, how are you supposed to live off uh, the pension? And I suppose one answer to that is exactly what we're talking about now, that when you're younger, you make provision for your older years. Uh, but will that make the case in time to come to reduce what's paid via the state pension? Well, what was the question again? Uh, if more people have uh, their own uh, private pensions, uh, will, will, will that make the argument for reducing what's paid through the state pension? Well, see, this is a concern. Uh, if we move towards a, a full auto-enrollment system, uh, uh, then uh, will there be in the future more emphasis put on that pension Uh, at the expense of the state pension. So what you could be seeing is what's called an increasing financialization, or another word for it is privatization of uh, our pension savings uh, system. So that's a concern, and that's why it is important that the state pension uh, be uh, enhanced and be linked to something like wage growth or national income growth, because over time that could be degraded uh, uh, so that people, in one sense, mm. they're still better off, but you know, it doesn't look as good as it might now on paper. Okay, and you will be able to opt out of it if you decide it's not for you. Uh, you're not obliged to stay uh, in uh, this pension scheme after having been enrolled into it. You can come out. Uh, but will people will ask questions. You hear people say, oh, I was in a pension for 30 years and I ended up with nothing at the end of it. Is there a risk or will they be able to give some degree of security? No, there, there, there's a problem. That this is one of the two main problems with the design of the auto-enrollment scheme. First off, there is no certainty of return. That's why it's called a defined contribution scheme. Your contribution is defined, you know, 6% of your wage, uh, but your, your, what you get in retirement is not defined. That is different from what's called a defined benefit scheme, and many of your listeners may well be uh, benefiting from a defined benefit scheme, which means you know in advance what your retirement benefit will be. You know, it might be 50% of your final salary or 50% of your average earnings or whatever, but you know, you, you know what it will be. Under this scheme, you won't know what your retirement income will be. It will depend on the uh, equities market, you know, how, how the stock exchanges are going. It will be dependent upon property returns, the uh, investment acunum of the pension funds. Uh, you, we won't know. So the problem with this scheme is that the employee will take all the risks. If the returns are high, okay, that's great. But if the returns are low over the lifetime, uh, then they will take the risk, not the state, not the employer. That's the first problem with this, is the lack of certainty. The second problem is that, in, uh, uh, that take the issue of carers, people who leave the workforce uh, to care for children or for elderly relatives. And, you know, it, mm. it's mostly women who do this, you know. Yeah. Uh, they, they carry uh, a large proportion of those caring uh, duties. Uh, under the PRSI pension system, they can get a credit, which means they don't lose out on their pension contribution. But under auto-enrollment, if they leave uh, their job, if they leave the labor market, there are no contributions paid. So they won't have a strong a pension. Uh, 
as, say, a man who doesn't, you know, take mm. time out to care, take care for their children. So this will discriminate against women because they will have a lower lifetime level of contributions. Mm. So those are the two of the biggest flaws uh, in the system. And that's why when the uh, Oireachtas Committee uh, comes to examine this, the, the scheme is going to the Oireachtas Committee for examination, they should look very carefully at measures that would bring greater certainty of, of what people can expect in retirement from their contribution and also how to address this issue of people opting out uh, for caring roles uh, or for people who are on short-term unemployment or on illness. Again, uh, if you're on benefit, you don't lose out on your contributions under the, under the state pension system, but you would lose out on contributions under auto enrollment. Okay, and when may you qualify for it? Is that of concern to you? Uh, I think they're suggesting that drawdown will be aligned with the state pension age, uh, and uh, that's still uh, a matter of a discussion. Uh, will anybody want to pay into a pension scheme if uh, they don't get a, a pension, they don't get a payment until they're 70? Well, no, I mean, the, the government has made it clear. The pension age is going to uh, remain at 66. The issue around, you know, deferring your state pension to the age of 70, uh, that, uh, uh, that, that's just an issue of uh, 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 that you'll get a, you know, a mm. higher payment. Uh, uh, if you do so, you know, higher annual payment. Uh, but that shouldn't, that won't impact on the auto enrollment. You, it'll be linked to the pension age, uh, of 66. And you will get it, uh, regardless, uh, you know, you may still be working, but mm. you'll still be able to draw down this auto enrollment pension just as you currently draw down the state pension. So I don't think that's the issue, but there is an issue with the drawdown because uh, the mechanism for the drawdown isn't actually nailed down completely. Uh, when you retire, it, you know, the, the uh, government proposals say that, you know, you can opt for a lump sum up to a certain level, like 10% or 15% of your total pension fund. You can then buy an annuity uh, or buy some other retirement product. And that means that uh, you have a double whammy on people who are retiring. One, they don't know what their retirement income is going to be uh, under this scheme. And secondly, they have to buy another market-related product to, you know, to actually get the money into their pockets. Now, the government has anticipated this, and they say that the new agency that's going to oversee all this, which is called the Central Processing Agency, uh, they may themselves come forward and offer a new means for drawing down the pension. And it seems like the most straightforward way is that you get a certain percentage of your pension fund paid by the central processing agency, and you don't have to go through the route of buying an annuity or buying some other pension product or whatever. So that would be the most straightforward. Okay. It'll probably be good news for commercial investment companies uh, as well because uh, there'll be a lot more business for them. Michael, we leave there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Michael Taft is a researcher with SIP2. Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents which Garda are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Kyle Waters is in Enfield Garda Station and joins us uh, for this week's report. And we're going to begin uh, this week with a burglary. We go back uh, a week in time to last Tuesday in the house that was broken into in Dramad. 
Good morning, Michael, and to all the listeners. Uh, yes, there's a burglary um, we're appealing for information in relation to um, an address in Upper Fanarkin, Drumad in County Loud. Um, a burglary occurred in the area on Tuesday, the 4th of October, between 6pm and 6.30pm. A residential property was broken into and an amount of cash and jewellery were taken. Two males in balaclavas were observed fleeing from the property. Um, anyone who has any information or witnessed anything suspicious in the area at the time are asked to please contact Dundalk Garda Station on 042-938-416. The next report is of another burglary. This happened in Bow Park Slane last Wednesday. Correct, Michael. Yes, the Guardian Slane are investigating a burglary that occurred in the Bow Park area of Slane on Wednesday the 5th of October at approximately 8pm. A house was broken into and the rooms were ransacked. Garda appealing for anyone who may have witnessed anything suspicious in the area at the time to please call Navangarda station on 046 Next to an all too familiar crime, a catalytic converter has been stolen in Drogheda. Yes, uh, Michael, this is um, in Drogheda railway station on the 6th of October. So we're looking for the public's assistance with the test of a catalytic converter which is stolen from a 181LH white Toyota RS car that was parked at the railway station in Drogheda on the 6th of October between 8am and 12pm. The owner of the vehicle was alerted to the theft when they turned on the car and heard a very loud sound from the vehicle. So Gary, you're interested in speaking with anyone who may have witnessed anything suspicious in the area during these times, please contact Drogheda Garda station on 041 9874216. We go to County Meath and a theft that occurred in Douth. That's right, uh, Douth on the 7th of October. So Gary and Slane are looking for public assistance with a break into a foreign registered Skoda Superb that was parked Douth, County Meath, between 12pm and 3pm. The rear window of the vehicle was smashed and a rucksack was taken from the back seat of the car. To appeal to anyone to, who has seen anything or witnessed anything suspicious in the air, please contact Navangarda Station on 046-9036-100. Next to a stolen vehicle. Yes, this is an authorised taken of vehicle in Dunshockton on the 5th of October. So it's a 12 Monaghan registration Volkswagen Golf was taken from the early hours Wednesday morning, the 5th of October, from the Willows Houses Estate in Dunshockland. Um, so at approximately 1.10am, a, a neighbour observed two males wearing hoodies pushing the vehicle from the driveway onto the road and driving away. The house was not broken into and the keys are with the owner. Guardian are appealing for anyone who may have witnessed anything suspicious in the area at this time or if any motors that were travelling in the area at the time might have dash cam footage to please contact Ashburn Garda Station on 01 801 0600. Okay, and uh, we're going to conclude uh, with an incident uh, which, uh, apart from anything else, might come as a warning to others uh, a phone scam. Yes, uh, Guardian Dramad are investigating an incident of fraud by deception where the injured party was contacted by a person via phone call who they believed was from their bank. They were advised to uninstall their banking app on their phone and they were informed that the bank would post them out new details. The injured party reinstalled the app on their phone a few days later and discovered five transactions had occurred on their account, totalling €12,000. Investigations are at an early stage, but Gardaí are advising the public to be extremely cautious when answering the phone to people pretending to be from your bank or financial institution and never give out any personal details. If you're in any doubt, hang up and contact your bank directly yourself.
Okay, well, that's a, a sorry story, isn't it? 12,000 euro, you said. It's a lot of money. It really is. Okay, well, we'll leave it there. And uh, as I said at the outset, uh, perhaps uh, that will come as a, a word of warning to all of us. Uh, and uh, indeed, as uh, you tell us, Garda, don't be giving out your uh, personal details and hang up if uh, you're contacted like that and contact the bank directly yourself. Thank you indeed, Garda Kyle Waters of Enfield Garda Station. will return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday programme. Now before we leave you today, just a, a couple of comments uh, that have come to us uh, Eamon No Party in touch with us following our conversation with uh, Jed Nash of uh, the Labour Party uh, saying uh, that when Labour were in government with Fine Gael, uh, there was an austerity policy Labour backed austerity to the hilt uh, and uh, he says uh, it's a bit rich coming along now uh, with some of uh, these proposals uh, that we heard about uh, this morning uh, with vac- vacant property taxes uh, somebody else saying what about all of the empty council houses in the country will the councils have to pay the empty property tax now that is an interesting uh, question isn't it uh, particularly when uh, you hear uh, talk of how long does it take to refurbish a property if a landlord uh, uh, can't say that they're taking a year or two years uh, to refurbish a, a property how can a council I think that's the line of logic uh, that our caller is applying to this uh, a very interesting point as well given how long it can take to turn around some of these voids as uh, they call them or uh, indeed uh, empty properties as most of us would know them uh, but thank you indeed uh, if you have been in touch and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us today that is our programme for today and God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 87 Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.